0: Traditionally, when people thought about addiction, they thought about some form of drug or alcohol dependence. Over the past few decades, a new class of addictions has emerged as a result of technology, making addiction a much more pervasive phenomenon, causing much misery to millions the world over. Though traditionally, the realm of addiction was that of clinical psychology or psychopathology, today, we're going to look at how positive psychology can help. Our special guest today has written numerous books focusing on a wide variety of topics, from addiction to creating your best life. She received her BA from Harvard and her MA in positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. She's a world-renowned expert in the area of goal setting and positive psychology and works with organizations around the world to help them thrive. She's a nationally ranked master swimmer black belt in Hapkido, and yoga enthusiast. I'm delighted to be speaking today to Caroline Adams-Miller. Welcome, Caroline. So great to see you. Great to see you again. So, positive psychology and addiction. What's the connection?
1: What a good, elegant question. Well, that was the question I had. When I went through the MAP program in 2005, I was also at that point... um, maybe in my 25th year of recovery from bulimia. So some people know that I wrote the first book by anyone who overcame bul- um, bulimia, and that book came out in 1988. And as I was sitting there at Penn, I was thinking, why am I still in recovery when so many people aren't? And then I began to unpack my recovery and realize that I didn't know it. But positive psychology was at the root of why I got better from my addiction and stayed better. And I realized nobody was talking about this. So mm. I wrote another book about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and the book described the research, described your experience. What 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 tools did it give? Okay, for so people? The,
1: the book is positively Caroline, and it's the sequel to My Name is Caroline. And at the end of the book, um, it's autobiographical, but at the end of the book, I end with my Year in the Map program, and I talk about uh, coming to see you at Memorial Hall, and I talk about how a lot of pieces came together for me walking um, through Harvard and realizing I was in recovery. Um, But I talked about how best possible future self, using your strengths, goal setting, um, zest, um, um, using grit, Um, resilience, savoring, all of these things, you know, cultivating gratitude, all the things I did in my program to overcome um, my compulsive overeating and and eating disorder, it's basically positive psychology. And I was thinking, why isn't anyone talking about this? Because the Achilles heel of the eating disorder movement right now is that people are not talking about how to get into recovery and stay in recovery. We're we're light years behind alcoholism and drug recovery. Um, And I want to see that conversation change.
0: Mm. And is it changing?
1: I hope so. I'm trying.
0: Yeah. Um, There is another form of uh, addiction that I'm seeing more and more of uh, among people who are are coming to speak to me, among students. Mm -hmm. And that is addiction to some form of technology. So it can be uh, to their smartphone. It can be to Mm -hmm. porn. It can be to the internet. Um, Can positive psychology help there?
1: Oh gosh, composite. Is the sky blue? Yes. <laughs> um, addiction is addiction, and it basically, you're you're unable to delay gratification, and you're getting um, into this junk flow state where you know time stands still for all the wrong reasons. Um, and so, one of the, my next book is about grit, and I've been t- seeing that our attention span is one second less than a goldfish. I mean, human <laughs> beings have the attention span one second less than a goldfish. So we're being distracted and hijacked by so many things, whether it's food, or or exercise, or, or sex, or porn, or whatever it is. And so positive psychology, especially the session I just came from, really teaches you to slow down, kind of get into flow with yourself, savor what's going on, pay attention to what really matters. And it's not just about pleasure. That's one of the best things about this, is that positive psychology, as you know, teaches you that it's not just about getting this momentary pleasure, you've gotta be engaged in the right thing, not junk flow, it's gotta be meaningful. It's gotta add value to the world. So I think positive psychology, at its underpinnings, offers a real theoretical structure for how to approach addiction recovery in a brand new way.
0: Take, take me through a, a session that I would have to go through had I been addicted to um, either a food addiction or, or technology addiction. What, what would that actually look like?
1: Okay. Well, so I, I do a different kind of coaching. I do a lot of executive coaching and goal setting, but... Um, what I, because people still come to me because of this, one of the things I first talk to people about is what is it you wake up for? What is your Ikigai? Mm. What are you waking up for? Uh, what is your purpose in life? What do you find meaningful? What are your strengths? When have you been at your best? Because a lot of people who have addictions have lost the sight lost sight of the fact that they do something well other than binge, other than eat, other mm. than surf the internet. So they've lost the sense that they're they have any kind of value. And so reminding them that they have been a me at my best at some point is a very validating experience because everyone has a me at my best story and that there are five strengths that rise to the top. So there's that. And then we talk about social contagion. We talk about the people you spend time with. That's a big one um, that a lot of people with addictions have created um, environments where the behaviors and the cultures and the norms are all, um, you know, very negative. So it's it's like Nick um, Nick Christakis's research found that obesity is contagious, quitting smoking is contagious. Well, you know, addiction is and contagious. And so is happiness. And so is happiness and so are a lot of positive things. So, you know, when you flip it and you look at what are the things that you've done to not maximize well-being, to not maximize flow, to not maximize positive relationships, um, and give people a set of tools. Um, That's, you know, this of course doesn't take place all in one setting, but I think the first thing you have to do is give people hope, too, because the reason I'm alive and the reason I'm in recovery for 30 years is because I, very fortunately, sat in a 12-step meeting and heard a woman in 1984 say the words that saved my life. She said, my name is Betsy and I'm recovering from bulimia one day at a time. And 1984, all anybody knew was that people died and there was no one in recovery. And so I think a huge part of helping people get into recovery is meeting people who give them hope. We all know hope theory. Changes the brain, pathways thinking. And so I'm unpacking all of this at Penn, realizing positive psychology was in this. So you have to give people hope, and there's so many different ways to give them hope. But I believe that putting someone right in front of them who has walked in their shoes and who can speak that language is a huge piece of this. And then you've got to have mastery experiences, self-efficacy, one day at a time, sometimes one meal at a time, sometimes one computer session at a time.
0: And, and these, these experiences give you hope as well, because I've done it before, yes. why can't I do it yes. again?
1: Yes. And this is what I love about 12-step programs, one day at a time. I mean, you sit in those meetings and you look at the slogans and it's, you know, attitude of gratitude one day at a time, Um, simplicity, keep it simple, stupid. I mean, all of these lend themselves to having very small mastery experiences. It's like, why isn't anyone talking about self-efficacy theory? Um, And and having mastery experiences and what I find is that when I talk to people about this because I kind of do a lot of this on a volunteer pro bono just I feel like I have to give something back so I just talk to people and I find that it's not magical but it feels magical they begin to get better they have hope they set goals they set intrinsic goals not extrinsic goals you know they begin to change the people and the way they spend their time I used to say to people in the 1980s when I got better because they said you can't keep what you don't give away and I really do Mm -hmm. believe you can't keep what you don't give away so I give it away as much as I can which gives more to me which I think we all know from altruism research Um, but people begin to get better and then they turn around and start giving it to other people too and I I think it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done is to get into recovery Mm and turn around and give it back to people
0: you mentioned this, and and I know you've done a lot of uh, very important work in the area of goal setting. Mm -hmm. Um, Say more. What what did you find? What are you doing? How are you applying it? How are you giving Mm -hmm. it to others?
1: So, in the fall of 2005, when I'm in this first MAP class, we're at Marty's house, and I um, have just been introduced to goal setting theory, Locke and Latham, and um, have done triple takes all over the place because goal setting theory is what? You know, I, I had read Brian Tracy and Zig Ziglar, and all I knew was smart goals. And then I found out the Harvard study of 1950 is an urban myth. I mean, an urban legend, whatever, it's a myth. And I said to Marty, why doesn't anybody know that there's this research? At that time, the benefits of frequent positive affect had just come out. So I've got Locke and Latham, benefits of positive... Benefits of positive affect. Chris Peterson telling me happy people have four traits and self-efficacy is the fourth one. And I said, why don't people know this in the goal setting world? Why don't they know that happiness precedes success and yada yada? And I said, Marty, I'm gonna write about it. My capstone's gonna be a book proposal. And he said, why can't you just write about health care? And why can't you just make the, you know, help us make healthcare easier? I said, no, I'm gonna write it, because the world deserves a better book on goal setting. That capstone became the book Creating Your Best Life, and it is the only book, and it was the first book to connect the science of happiness with the science of goal setting, and it's still the only book. And at the time when it came out, it was the only evidence-based book on goal setting on the market. To this day, that still astonishes me. And so um, I just love the science of goal setting. I go into companies and find out they've set five- and ten-year visions that have nothing to do with goal setting theory. I mean, they've got performance goals that are learning goals and learning goals. that. Are, I mean, it's just, to use one of my favorite words, it's fakakta. I mean, it's like, huh. how, did it, how did this actually happen? Who did you pay for this? So I love to do that. And so, so to take it one step further, in Creating Your Best Life, chapter nine is about grit. And Angela's work was just getting popular then. So I, I was the first one to bring it out to the mass market. And so I said to Angela, at James and Susie's wedding. I said, you need to write a book on grit. She said, I'm never gonna write a book (laughs) on grit. You go write a book on grit. Well, Angela's book is out next week and I don't know how many millions she got for it, but I have decided, um, and I did just get a book contract this week on grit, that's a piece of goal setting too. Because to tie it all back to my first book, it takes grit to overcome an addiction, and this is this is something people don't want to know. They want to think it's easy, because in our culture, it's math made easy. It's dumbed-down playgrounds. It's all of these, you know, we have this society where everyone gets a trophy. And in addiction, it's a fight. It's perspiration. Did you say that today, or did James? James. Okay. It's perspiration, and that is not a popular way to approach anything at this point, but I'm, you know, look, it's the hardest thing I ever did. It's the best thing I ever did. So grit is my next topic, because I realize it's the thread that ran through every book, and it's why I'm alive. It's, it's the quality that awes and inspires other people Mm. to greatness. You know, Time Magazine just came out, 100 Most Influential People. You flip through it, there's not one story that doesn't have grit in it. So Anyway, so I've.
0: And, uh, how do you cultivate grit? So if uh, mm-hmm. you know you're uh, you're a manager in an organization, a teacher, you know, a parent, a partner, mm-hmm. how do you help? the other person, and first and foremost yourself, cultivate more grit?
1: Great question. So that's the burning question in the field, as you probably know. How do you cultivate grit and how do you see your your grit score actually move? Um, And this is something that's still being looked at. So I have my own ideas and I've worked with hundreds of people and this is what I see. The first thing I I see is that gritty people ask themselves, why not? So when they're facing a challenge, there's a split second where they just say, why not? So they bet on themselves. So they have high self-efficacy. So if you don't have high self-efficacy, you want to build it with small mastery experiences. It's also contagious. So as Angela's research showed, low grit score cadets room with high grit score cadets, their score comes up. I also see that- And
0: that's because they see an exemplar?
1: I think so. I think it's model. because they see they study a little bit harder, 10 more minutes. Um, they don't give up. They um, use humor to defuse stressful situations. So that's another way to do it. And you said how do you cultivate it in yourself? Yeah, I think if you're in, an, in a company and you want to cultivate grit, you better start with yourself. It's like good parenting. How do, you, how do you expect your kids to do something that you can't do yourself? I have an idea about embedding veterans in organizations or embedding people who are literally visual examples of grit um, and um, it's because I did an interview where I talked to a football coach, high school football coach who said an Iraqi veteran came back and wanted a job and they gave him the job of you know, mowing the field, you know, keeping up the field and he said the most interesting thing, he said we don't have as many whiners on the team anymore, high school football team. Mm. So I started thinking what if we embed veterans? in different organizations. What if every organization has a, a person who doesn't even have to say anything, but they're gritty? Um, and I, I gave a talk at a middle school last year, it gave me another idea. Um, and it's outside Dallas, and they've had a co- they had a lot of suicides actually, teen suicides. And um, they said, if only you'd come to talk about grit four years ago when these two girls just committed suicide. It was on CNN, they committed suicide over the same boy. Um, and what they did to form a grit committee in this school was they went around and interviewed all the teachers and said, tell us your story of resilience. What have you overcome? That these kids, they see you in the halls, but they wouldn't know that you've had it tough. All they see is, you know, you, it looks like you have it. So they got their stories and they laminated these stories and they put them in all the bathrooms in every stall and they called it the Stall Street Journal. And so the kids in these bathrooms it's like they're a captive audience. <laughs> and so they see that these administrators and teachers have stories of overcoming. So I think that's another way to do it is to become vulnerable enough to share your story. And this is something that I know is in Angela's book, even though I haven't read it, where give somebody advice on how to be grittier, but they found out that these people actually persisted longer. And I'm thinking that sharing these stories is another way of people getting grittier because they see that someone else has done it. And then there's the cultivation of humility. How about not taking a selfie one day? How about not using the word I? I think there's so many different ways to cultivate humility, which is almost non-existent in our culture.
0: And, and, and being humble is associated with grit.
1: Absolutely, and you probably know this, but you know, humility is not a character strength that makes you happy. Did you -hmm. you know that? So the research shows it doesn't make you happy, but it makes you proud. And so uh, Jim Collins in the book Good to Great, when he looked at the companies that had turnarounds, the most successful CEOs were the most humble. Well, there's parallel research. I found that the most successful athletes are also the most humble, which I think is really interesting. And so I've just been... You know, thinking, well, how do you cultivate humility? What would a worksheet on, worksheet on cultivating humility be like? Well, how about not taking a selfie? How about finding out what someone else's goals are and saying, you know, just maybe a two person reciprocity ring? What can I do to help you? So, maybe the, not the, all the about other you. thing
0: that uh, Jim Collins talks about is that the best leaders look out yeah. um, when, 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 when giving positive feedback rather than in. Yeah. So, that's another form There's of There's a being lot humble.
1: in that book, isn't there?
0: Yeah. Um, Caroline, I'd like to say a few words about, about goal setting. So, so mm-hmm. if you came to me as a, as, as a coach, mm-hmm. an executive coach, and you know I'm a, I'm a manager, w- what would you teach me? What are the most important things that you would teach me about setting goals, either personal or organizational goals?
1: Okay, so this is like goal setting 101 and it is important that first of all you have to have leveraged goals. You have to have short-term goals and long-term goals. So the most successful people have short-term goals that as you complete them they leverage into making the long-term goals more successful. Then there's the intrinsic piece, and I have shortened that to be so what? So what if you achieve it? So there has to be a way to describe the accomplishment of this goal in a meaningful way. Yeah,
0: so why, why is it important for me?
1: Why is it important for me? What What is it in your life or in your organization or in your team that's going to change measurably? Uh, because that's how you... I, at least I've found you tease out the extrinsic goals. Um, and then another common problem I see is when, when they have measurements, like we've got to make this much this year, this is our return on investment here, and this person has to meet these numbers, and what they've done is they've kind of put someone in a new slot and said, you make those, those goals, and I'll say, has that person ever done it? Well, no, they haven't. Well, then, how can you make it a performance goal? So, I explain learning goals and performance goals to them. Then, I also talk about how do you how do you savor the wins? How do you celebrate? How do you mark these? Because the research shows that gritty goals, you have to have some shorter term um, achievements. And, you know, Jim um, uh, Walsh, Walsh? W- Jack Welch, you know, through the most parties of any CEO at GE, he was always celebrating wins. So, I talk about that too. Another thing is, that a lot of organizations I've been with is they don't have any primes on the walls. They don't have any you know, uh, pictures. I, I love Gary Latham's research at Yale and fundraising where the fundraising guidelines that had pictures of a runner crossing a finish line, the people who had those scripts raised 60% more money than people who had fundraising guidelines with no picture on it. So take advantage of the research on primes, words, pictures, music, song, aroma, whatever. Um, And then have, you know, like the thermometer at the American Red Cross as you get more blood, have some visual showing that you're getting closer. And so those are just a few ideas, but I try to delve into how did you set these goals? And then we kind of work backwards. Well, where do you want to be in a year? Five years, ten years? How are you measuring it? And then here's the most interesting thing of all. Everyone's different. So there's no one-size-fits-all approach to motivating this person, this person, this person. And you see this in sports all the time. Michael Phelps' swim coach does not coach Michael Phelps the same way he coaches the other people in the pool. Great coaches earn their money by figuring out how to get in different people's minds to turn the key. That's what great managers have to learn. And I think it starts with curiosity.
0: Yeah, it starts with curiosity about oneself yeah. and then, by extension, about those around us. Well, yeah. um, thank you very much for doing all the work that you're doing for bringing all these worlds together and affecting so many people's lives.
1: Thank you for your work.
0: For more ideas that can bring happiness to your life, join us on Happier TV.